0: Hi, everybody. This is Emily Trenum, the host of Memphis Metropolis. I'm away from the microphone this week, so we're rebroadcasting one of my favorite episodes. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR. 91.7 91.7 FM. I'm the host, Emily Trenum. And today, I'm delighted to welcome Sean Massey to the show. Sean is Senior Vice President and Partner of the Shopping Center Group. He's also an adjunct professor of Real Estate University of Memphis. I had the privilege of taking real estate development from him many years ago now when I was getting my planning degree and it was really a great class. And Sean's also very involved in a lot of community and industry activities, and has been, you know, worked in the retail sector in a number of neighborhoods. We've talked on the show, such as being Hampton Highland Row, uh, the Edge, and of course a lot of other places around the region. So, uh, so welcome, Sean.
1: Welcome. I'm glad to be here.
0: So, um, so before we get into, um, well, I should tell everybody. You know, the topic of the day is um, the issue of locating grocery stores, attracting grocery stores to low and moderate income neighborhoods. And I have a little bit of a soapbox I want to stand on um, before we get to the questions. But, but before we get into that, Sean, just tell the audience what the shopping center group is and what your particular role is. I don't, um, I think. We've talked about this before, if you represent tenants or if you recruit businesses to retail or both. So tell us about the company and then tell us about what you do, just in a nutshell. Uh,
1: the Shopping Center Group, uh, now known as TSCG, we actually changed the name of the company to be more reflective of where retail is going in the future, that uh, 50% of our transactions nationwide were not in traditional shopping centers, but mixed-use projects, but we're the largest retail only real estate firm in the United States. We have uh, the shopping center group through the shopping center group has about 27 offices throughout the United States. We're part of a larger company called chain links. And with chain links, we have offices in Canada and uh, Poland, UK area. Um, But we are a retail only, we represent tenants looking for retail spaces. We represent landlords looking to recruit high end retailers. And along with that, we help developers find land. We have uh, help developers sell their shopping centers or mixed-use projects. So we do everything real estate as it relates to retail.
0: Okay, I that's uh, I didn't know a lot of that. So I, I understand why you changed your name, but I like company names that are you know intuitive. And the shopping center group is uh, you know ex- as opposed to initials explains what what uh,
1: yeah.
0: what it's about. But I understand.
1: It was really good when uh, the internet first came out. When you looked up shopping shopping centers, our name came up. But uh, at like all retail, it's evolved.
0: So of course, I worked in community development for a long time and spent a lot a lot of time in neighborhoods, talking to residents about their you know community needs and also you know their their desires for the community. And, you know, in those discussions, of course, there's a lot of things people want. I mean, a lot of people want more activities for kids, as you can imagine, and, you know, things on the social service side. But, you know, in the top three consistently is, um, uh, you know, supermarkets. People want, um, you know, better access to supermarkets. This This is, you know, a story for another day, but, of course, A lot of when neighborhoods have supermarkets or or grocery stores, a lot of times they're not in good condition, not well maintained or stocked. And a lot of people in Memphis don't have access to cars. We don't have good public transportation. So people sometimes it's a bit of a journey to get to. But 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 I know from, you know, working for Community Development Council, I mean, attracting a grocery store to a neighborhood is hard. And, um, you know, it's hard and it's complicated. And, you know, there's been some in the news about that lately, there's been an effort to, to attract a grocery store to the South city neighborhood. I know there there's a desire to bring a grocery there's, there's, you know, downtown's been trying to get a grocery store forever. And there's an effort to get uh, a grocery store into that, um, the project that was called urban row and I'm now forgetting, what the new name of it is the walk. Yes. And, um, you were involved in a, you know, in a successful effort to bring a grocery store to Binghampton, which also was a a challenge. So anyway, so I'm going to quit talking and just, and just ask you, we, 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 you and I were emailing back and forth a bit and, um, you know, you laid out some reasons why, um, you know, grocery stores, it's hard to get grocery stores in low and moderate income neighborhoods. And so just go through some of the, I want to talk about, you know, solutions as it were as well, but let's just talk about some of the reasons that you laid out, some of the unique complications for grocery stores locating in these kind of neighborhoods.
1: I, I'm far from an expert on grocery stores, but uh, with my effort to bring a grocery store to several other retail projects that I've done and to Binghamton area at the Binghampton Gateway Center, I've, I've got a fast lesson in why grocery stores may or may not work. Uh, and I'm going to kind of, I'll, I'll kind of run through them and kind of finish with is really the big complications. Uh, when you're in low to moderate income areas, people tend to get paid every two weeks. Uh, so you have a large rush of groceries shopping at the middle of the month and at the end of the month that's hard for a grocery store to plan for. I mean, it, he knows it's going to have that rush, but bringing in inventory, bringing in stuff. So that's one little complication that can be worked through. Uh, insurance and security uh, is a very big issue in areas that are per, are perceived to be higher crime areas. Uh, it's hard to find in LMI areas, employees to actually work the grocery stores. Uh, and again, this is stuff that's being told to me by the grocery operators, but reading and looking around the country, it's pretty same same thing. Uh, grocery stores' perception is that they uh, make a lot of money, but they really work on a very small profit margin of like 1% to 2% profit margin. And it takes a long while at that low profit margin to become profitable and sustainable. Uh, funding for grocery stores in low to moderate income areas is challenging in itself. It's a whole new subsection that we could talk about, uh, but we it needs incentives to make it work. If Without the incentives, there's no grocery stores in low to moderate income areas. Even with incentives, it's still challenging. Uh, feasibility, uh, we hear about urban food deserts, but because of areas of food desert doesn't make, necessarily make it feasible for a grocery store, if it was a profitable area, the grocery stores would have already been there. And we can kind of talk later a little bit more about criteria. Uh, neighborhood attachment. Uh, a lot of grocery stores, and we saw this with the Save A Lot of Binghampton, is actually a detachment with a neighborhood. Each neighborhood, as you know, Emily, you cover so many of them here in Memphis and around the country through High Ground News. They're very different. They're very unique. And a grocery store needs to attach itself to a neighborhood and really kind of meet the needs of that neighborhood for it to become sustainable. And it also has to adapt. I mean, we have neighborhoods that are low to modern income that are now becoming low to modern income and other good neighborhoods, like higher incomes coming in there. Then uh, the kind of the big points, and I'll finish the question, is you need to understand grocery stores, like any retail, rely on numbers a lot of these low and moderate income areas do not have the numbers and the disposable income to justify the sales necessary to support a grocery store. Um, Grocery stores have have higher maintenance in some urban areas. Um, Growth of dollar stores that have proliferated, cut back on a full chain grocery store. They take away some sales again, reducing the sustainability of a full service grocery store. And then, the one thing that we hear all the time is that shrinkage could be three, 4% or higher. And you go back to grocery stores that are working on a one to 2% margin. That's hard to sustain.
0: Okay. So the, um, so let's drill in with a couple, let me, let me drill down in a couple of those things. The, um, so feasibility, and I've, I've heard that grocery stores have, you know, low margins, but you know, in some of the areas in methods that have tried to attract grocery stores there, you know, there's been market studies and I mean, sometimes leaders of community development corporations make the point that, you know, there is disposable income in some of these neighborhoods. And so I guess, can, you know, can you just elaborate on that a little bit? I, I mean, not that it doesn't make sense. I just, I'm just, you know, I just like, like there's just neighborhoods that that I I have. I feel like there's been market studies. There's incomes there and, but grocery stores aren't, aren't, it's not enough to appeal to them.
1: I mean, I'll take a couple of recent market studies that we did after uh, save a lot closed in Binghampton. We did a market study. Uh, It showed that a grocery store there would, do about $90,000 a week. Uh, at that level, it's not high enough to justify a grocery store uh, per se. In South City, we did a market study two years ago by a national uh, national wholesaler, and they came in a market study about seven and a half million dollars. Again, to justify a good grocery store of 30,000 square feet, it needs to be about 11 million, $12 million minimum in sales. I mean, you think the average Kroger does 25 to 30 million. Uh, smaller grocery stores can do, work on a little less, but it's not always the, the feasibility of, that the money's there. It's some of the other factors that come in. The shrinkage is a big factor. I mean, that was uh, told to, to us again and again when looking at studies is when you're working on a 1% to 2% margin and you have 3 to 4% shrinkage, it makes it difficult.
0: So I don't know if you've listened to my show, but I have a jargon bell that I ring when we have... <laughs> because one of my goals in life is, is to demystify. So I think people know what shrinkage is. But just to be clear, shrinkage is theft of product by employees and customers, correct?
1: That That is absolutely correct. It's It's how much we call going out the back door that is not being paid for. And I know it's, I I always go back to a story. Do you have shrinkage? I I had a unique job in college. I was a professional shoplifter for Kmart. And I will tell you, I, I went to every Kmart in this city and walked out with hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of merchandise and never once was stopped. And I was doing it on behalf of Kmart to try to help find out what, how do we cure it. It's still prevalent today.
0: Wow. So so, um, it's not sort of, you know, a myth or um, discrimination to say that, that shrinkage is higher in lower income neighborhoods than it is in um, sure. wealthier you areas.
1: Shrinkage. You have shrinkage in wealthier areas, but you have higher sales. So the shrinkage as a percentage of sales is much lower in higher end neighborhoods, but shrinkage happens everywhere.
0: So it's more impactful potentially. Yeah, I can see that. Have in a given week a thousand dollars of merchandise stolen, it's gonna be that could be the same in Central Gardens or Lamar. But the, if the sales are lower, on, if overall sales are lower than Lamar, that same amount of uh, shrinkage is going to have a bigger impact on the bottom line.
1: I, that affects the margin. I, I, there are ways. I mean, part of that shrinkage is that you see grocery stores in LMI areas. Like, and I go back to Binghampton, had a full-time security on uh, at the store. That's a forty five dollars to $50,000 cost that you may not need in a higher end neighborhood. But today I see uh, security guards in all grocery stores.
0: Oh, for sure. I do too.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, and I, and sort of on the, um, on the issue of um, neighborhood attachment, I mean, grocery, that sort of seems to me, that's the, you know, part of what the job is of a grocery store. I mean, Kroger does. I mean, people like to hate on Kroger because because they sort of dominate the, you know, the the national chain mm-hmm. landscape here. But I mean, they, you know, the product mix. I've been in Krogers all over, and the product mix is different depending on the surrounding neighborhoods. So why is that sort of a barrier? And maybe I don't I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems like that what what operators would be doing anyway.
1: I, th- I think Kroger does a very good job of catering to the neighborhoods. The uh, the Kroger in Germantown versus the Kroger at Poplar in Cleveland are two very merchandise stores. We ran into uh, as we worked with Save a Lot in Binghamton area. We uh, and and I say we. I really believe it's Binghamton Development Corporation brought to their management. Hey, this is products that. The neighborhood want to help. We held charrettes, and these are products that we would like to see. And basically we didn't know this going in and this is kind of our thing is Save-A-Lot runs a store in Binghamton, Tennessee the same way they run one in Boise, Idaho. There is no, they merchandise it the same, they carry the same products. Uh, It was a very clean, nice store, but it did not want to listen to the neighborhood you get that a little better with the super lows, the cash savers. I mean, the Stephenson Family, uh, Castle Retail, Rick James, do a marvelous job of listening to the neighborhood. Uh, So trying to attract grocery stores to neighborhoods in LMI areas, it's best to have maybe a local or regional chain, Um, but that brings up other challenges for them. Uh, Sure.
0: So let's talk about a little bit about some, uh, you know, solutions or creative ways, you know, stores and then the community working together can make it work. And um, I mean, the the thing about South city is um, I feel like, and I don't know the details of, you know, of all those conversations obviously, but I feel like in South city, there probably were quite a few incentives. There's probably, you know, Cheap or inexpensive land could have been made available. I'm sure there was some local incentives. Probably would have been eligible for, um, you know, this healthy food finance um, financing available from the federal government through a program called New Market Tax Credit. So I feel like it was probably a pretty good package of incentives or something available to locate in an area. That has you know a lot of population and really kind of a big income. Um, there's you know low new low income areas, but it's also access to higher income areas and in, in the South Main area. So to me, that's a classic case. of you can't make it work there, why? It's just frustrating.
1: It, it it's frustrating. I, I'll go. for it, Areas are known more as bifurcated neighborhoods. You have. South Main, higher incomes, wanting stuff. Then you have South City, where it's a little bit more moderate to low income. And I'm going to take them one on time. First of all, land in the right location. When we were working with the grocery store, we were actually competing with Wiseacre. And Wiseacre typically won out because they could afford to pay more for the land than we could. We were competing for that same site because that was an ideal site that would allow people uh, close proximity to the South main area where we have higher incomes, but still provide if you move further West into the South city, less and less people from, uh, from South main area would want to travel to them. Uh, so location was hard and we were competing. There are some other tracks that are not available or too expensive within that area. So land is a challenge in the South, South city area. Incentives were there uh, to through uh, Archie Willis and Capcom. They had their project. They had like seven-figure incentives. The city would have provided a community pilot. All those things were there, but we could not find the location. But then we had a second challenge. We knew we had a market study that showed a margin, a grocery store would be marginally successful at thirty thousand square feet. That's without competition. We knew that Union Row, or now The Walk, was going to put a grocery store in, and that scared other grocery stores that now what would have been marginally profitable could change greatly now that they had a competition of a second store. I know The Walk people are working on a grocery store that, and they're doing a good job of trying to locate it for South City and locate it for their project. And hopefully at that area of Union, the people in South Maine will feel comfortable coming up to that area and feel safe, that we will have a grocery store sometime in the near future in downtown Memphis.
0: Well, and you, that store at the walk will have some of the same challenges that you laid out for South City, which is that they're they're going to be catering to um, a pretty broad income spectrum and um, getting back to your earlier point about neighborhood attachment you know you've got people that want the yeah I, I can only imagine that that adds an extra layer of challenges I mean you you see people I mean there are stores here that you know do a pretty good job of it I my particular grocery store is the Kroger at poplar in Cleveland and it's not the closest Kroger but I don't like to deal with union Avenue, like a lot of people. And, um, and that Kroger doesn't have the highest, they don't have the Murray's cheese shop, but people from all over Midtown shop there. I mean, there's a lot of people from Evergreen who shop there. And then of course, that's also adjacent to low income areas, So it's not perfect. I mean, you can't, I got a fresh market. You can't get everything there, but I'm saying, but, but stores can do a good job of, of, um, trying to cater to a lot of different income levels, but I'm sure it's a challenge for an operator. It
1: it, it is a challenge because a way a grocery store, if you, and again, I've learned a lot in the last couple of years of how grocery stores lay out. They work, like I said, on a very low margin where they can get more profitable is what they call their perimeter of their store. If you see the layout is the butcher shop, the cheese shops that you talked about, the bakery, a lot of those uh, wine and beer around the perimeter create a higher profit margin for the grocery store. That, that those products are sometimes out of reach. Surprisingly, for the LMI areas, they are more required to look at the interior of the store, the value proposition, the five pounds of flour, the processed foods, which again, bring out an healthy part. So a grocery store who's trying to cater to both could fall short uh on both categories they may intimidate the lmi guy lmi personnel by having too much higher product or as you feel you're you like the program at, at poplar and cleveland it's less traffic than in union but it doesn't carry some of the products that you will eventually go somewhere else for
0: no question and i totally get that i mean um people do want to feel like the store serves what they want to buy. And I'm, you know, I'm privileged to, you know, have a car and also utilize grocery delivery. And so I can, you know, have a variety of choices to shop. And so if people, you know, are walking or um, taking, getting a ride or riding the bus to a store, yeah, that store needs to um, have pretty much everything I need and you, and you sort of mentioned this a minute ago um, in passing, but I I've got to think that the you know the proliferation of dollar stores in neighborhoods over the last decade has cut even more into potential feasibility for grocery stores because those they have a lot of not produce or healthy food, but those have a decent amount of food in them.
1: They have a lot of the processed foods, the flours, the pastas the stuff that's got better shelf life than a regular grocery store. But they do cut in. I mean, every time they do a million dollars of sales, they're taking a million dollars of sales away from a local grocery store and, and making it less and less feasible. You're gonna see in the future, uh, we've been talking to the Dollar Tree, Family Dollars, Dollar Generals, and they're bringing more milk and fresh produce and breads into their store because they're finding that they may be the only food source other than a convenience store for many communities.
0: Sure. And, you know, that's another thing. It's a, you know, I've certainly heard a lot of, um, you know, complaints about that over the years about how many of those they are. And of course, a lot of times they're not very attractive, but, um, but those a lot of times are, they're the only retailers going in um, and they are general merchandise stores and you can get milk. I mean, you might pay, overpay for it but you can get milk and you can get bread and you can get batteries i mean otherwise people didn't have anything in a lot of neighborhoods
1: it it actually reduces the cost of living i mean i i know there's a lot of other reasons people don't like dollar stores but for a neighborhood it does it costs a little more than a grocery store but way less than a convenience store for those products and they may be the only thing that keeps people's paycheck to paycheck living possible.
0: So that's a great transition to to my last question. Um, So of course we've been talking about grocery stores, but you know, residents of neighborhoods want more retail in general. And a lot of times there's, um, you know, there's, there's, you know, wing stores and barbershops and, you know, important businesses that are serving the community. But, you know, you've got a lot of experience in different retail segments. What other um, people want coffee shops? Like what other kinds of, of retail are, you know, are feasible for these neighborhoods? And, you know, you spend a lot of time in neighborhoods as well that you would like to see, you know, come into some of these neighborhoods like, you know, an Orange Mound or, um, you know, an uptown. What are your thoughts about that?
1: I mean, what people a lot of times when I get and do charrettes with neighborhoods and I've done them in Binghamton and Fraser of what people would like to see. Some of them, their aspirations are a little, are not built for neighborhoods. They're built for regional areas like the, the JCPenney's and the TJ Maxx and the Ross Dress for Less. We would, they would love to see them. That's where they shop, but they're not always feasible in every single neighborhood. What we've, what we're looking at is kind of a natural involvement of where retail is going. It's very going back to neighborhood type retail. And, and with those, the food, the QSRs, which is quick service, fast food restaurants, the fast casuals, we're putting coffee shops. I, I I'm fortunate to represent Starbucks in this market and we're under construction in Raleigh. We're building in Whitehaven. We're going to announce several new stores in areas that you've never thought you'd see Starbucks in before. Those are going, the nail salons, the hair salons are integral parts of our neighborhood. Uh, we call MedTail, the urgent care clinics, and some of the places, the shot nurses, we're starting to see them go more neighborhoods. We still want the bakery. We like that local ice cream shop, I mean, that you can go to take your grandkids to. Uh, the other thing that we're seeing in neighborhoods is more pop-up shops to kind of incubate neighborhood retailers coming that are working out of their house coming into and we need more of that to happen in neighborhoods to really give people a chance to see if their product can be sold at a at a market level without having to go into a five-year lease at a major shopping center so it it retail is evolving and neighborhoods are building uh, again goes back to I don't say I I used to say, I used to do everything retail and we build retail shopping centers. I mean, now my philosophy is that we build neighborhoods uh, and and we handle the retail part of that neighborhood building. So those things that are internet resistant that uh, e-commerce is not gonna block you out of is where retail and the people, whether in Germantown or Binghamton or Smoky City, they want those same essential services. They may deliver in a different experience, but those same uh, services need to come to every neighborhood. So that's what we see to go along. The grocery store is integral for their success. Uh, The whole idea behind Binghamton Gateway was if we put the grocery store there, people would come weekly for their groceries and support the other retailers in the shopping center. And we saw that with Inspire Cafe, which is a, a really cool food concept that uh, would help something there. And we're doing the same thing in other shopping centers throughout the city.
0: Yeah, Inspire is amazing uh, on a on a number of different levels. So yeah. well Sean, this has just been fascinating. I can't say I'm you know any more optimistic about this, but um but it's been really interesting to hear your perspectives. Um so
1: you... If, I, if I could say one last thing. Oh, oh for sure. We gotta keep, we, oh, we just got to keep trying. I mean, uh, I'm working up in Frazier. I'm working South City, uh, a little further south than we were before. I'm working to backfill, save a lot in Binghampton, um, uh, working in Raleigh. And we haven't given up on, we have to identify good operators that are willing to go into the inner city. We need, we're going to try to we're cultivate, hopefully, more African-American-owned grocery stores, try to help them open grocery stores in their own community, whether that's through a co-op or through incentives, or identify operators in other cities that have great success. And we're working with one that hopefully in 2021, it should have been announced in 2020, that wants to open five or six grocery stores in LMI areas.
0: Really? That's you know, amazing.
1: So, so we're, we're excited. It's an it's a African-American owned enterprise from up north. And we're trying to do that. If COVID had not happened, we would probably be further along. But the thing I want to emphasize to communities, it's a marathon, not a sprint. But we got to keep trying. That bringing healthy eating grocery stores to neighborhoods in LMI areas, is critical for the health and well-being of our community, overall community.
0: Well, I'm glad you added that because, first of all, I couldn't agree more, obviously, but I'm just delighted to hear about that potential operator coming in because um, I agree with you, you know, cultivating local, you know, there's a lot of, you know, programs through ULI now about, you know, to, for emerging developers and, all those things can sort of come together we'd love to see some more local operators but um, but I'm really happy to hear about this um, this potential operator from up north but um, anyway that's great so thank you and I I agree it, it is a marathon and but having said that um, I mean you've been in the business a long time and uh, I have two in you know in different roles and um, I mean even a marathon you want to you know, you want to get
1: where you are at want to. You, you want to get there, and the city of Memphis, through its emerging developer program, the city officials in place now, everybody is working towards this goal, and we're working together. We're work. The city is bringing incentives because uh, a, gro- a, a grocery store in an LMI area is just not financially feasible as a market deal. I mean, that's this. We've learned that over and over. But everybody working out, but I want to assure your listeners that this community comes together and for the right operator and the right group, uh, we can help solve a problem. But be patient, but we're going to keep trying. So,
0: well, and as you said earlier, I mean, grocery stores, these weren't your words exactly, but grocery stores are a lot more than retail. I mean, they're an important. Um, source of nutrition um, and healthy food for the community, which is something that we really want to see. We want all of our, you know, every Memphian to have um, convenient access to healthy, affordable food.
1: Exactly. I mean, a gross, just putting a healthy grocery store is not going to change people's eating habits, but if you don't have it, the people that want to change don't have access then we're in trouble.
0: Right. Agree. So you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR, and I've been talking to Sean Massey, who's the senior vice president and partner of TSG, um, also very involved in the community and the real estate industry um, as an adjunct professor, University of Memphis. And Sean, has just been incredibly interesting. And I know you have you know, expertise in other areas of retail. So I'm definitely going to have you back on at some point. Oh,
1: well, welcome opportunity.
0: I, I feel like this is whenever I have people on, I feel like we could talk about this for an hour at least and not run out of things You're to say. You're welcome. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis everybody. I'm here with Charlie Santo who's um, the director of the city and regional planning department at university of Memphis, one of our regular commentators. So welcome back, Charlie.
2: Hey, Emily. Good to be here.
0: And happy, happy new year.
2: Happy 2021. Indeed. Let's do it.
0: (laughs) So Charlie, I, um, you know, earlier in the program, um, Sean Massey, um, who's a local retail expert from TSG, was on the show. And I mean, a couple of things I wanted to say just on the front end. I mean, obviously that's, I have worked in community development, you know, starting in 2000, actually while I was still in planning school before you, you came to Memphis. And you know, attracting grocery stores to low and moderate income neighborhoods is just a recurring theme, not just in Memphis, but it's something I've spent a lot of time thinking about talking about with my colleagues over the years. So it's a subject that I've been wanting to once, you know, Memphis Metropolis got going, but also I invited Sean on and, and I think this is something that address it might be the first person I've had on from the private sector. And, you know, I've been talking to you from the beginning about my vision for this program. And you've actually, you know, been very helpful, thinking a lot of it through. And I'm not sure we ever ta- really talked about that, that I I do want to have private sector perspectives. First of all, I don't want to just be in my own little echo chamber. But also, it's, it's I mean, the show's about the built environment and, you know, the real estate market is just really influences the built environment so much more so really than a lot of the things we talk about. And so that's just, that's one of the reasons I invited John. I hope he'll come back. He's a real, um, that it was a good candidate because first of all, he's got a lot of subject matter expertise, obviously, but he's, you know, he's one of a relatively small group of people that I know that, you know, care about the community and put their money where their mouth is in terms of really helping to get community development projects going. Um, and just, he's just extremely knowledgeable also. So, so ramble, I'm rambling as usual, but yeah. just sort of to teeing <laughs> it up, telling you what, that's one of the reasons I invited him. I thought he would have a lot of interesting perspectives on the topic, which of course he did. I learned a lot.
2: Yeah, no, I think it's great. I mean, I applaud that. I, Sean in particular is great. And he, he did talk at the end about how he sees, you know, his group as building communities now and not just building, uh, you know, the real estate portion of, of, of retail or grocery. Um, and so having hearing private sector developers have that perspective is always sort of encouraging. Uh, but yeah, I, I applaud the effort to bring in multiple perspectives on community development and we need to hear from the private sector. Uh, because you set it up front, you know. When you talk to communities, anytime you start a neighborhood planning process, one of the thing you're gonna one thing you're gonna do is talk about, well, what do you want to see in this neighborhood? And you set it up front. It's uh, grocery store is always at the top of the list, and and so I think it's an important part of the education as we talk about educating people about planning and community development. That we we can't just do it. Right? That's not how planning works. Right? We can't just color this property on the map grocery store color and dictate that it happens. Um, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that it's residents in low income neighborhoods that don't understand this. It's, it's most, it's really most people outside of the little world that we live in, including our planning students. Um, you know, it's, I can't tell you how many times working with students as they're developing the acumen, uh, for the planning profession and they start to draft up, you know, mock plans for a community and they say, well, this will be a grocery store and, and wouldn't it be nice to have a little coffee shop here and a, this could be a movie theater Well, how? Like we—that's not—that's not not what we do with the plan, right? It's the private sector investors putting up their own money because they expect a return, Uh, and so we can set the stage for that in—you know—a few different ways, but we can't dictate it.
0: Well, and that's a good point. I mean, I, I, I mean, if if you know the resident voice in planning is so important, and you know plans do need to be shaped by what residents want. But having said that, I have been in that situation where, you know, doing resident engagement around a neighborhood plan and a grocery store comes up. And what I'm thinking is no way in hell (laughs) is the grocery store going to locate here. I mean, I would never in a million years say that to somebody. And, um, and I, first of all, I'd love to be proven wrong. Um, but, uh, as you said, it just is, is, um, a lot of times it's just not feasible, even what we're going to be talking later about, um, you know, public policy and incentives adding on to what Sean and I talked about, even with that, it's just, it's, it's, you know, 99% of the time, those are private sector projects.
2: Yeah. And so you, you have to, the, the plan can lay the foundation to get there, right? If you think of more generally, there, well, there's, there's two things that we can do. What, what, we can subsidize uh, and we can talk more about why that's okay, why actually that makes sense in this case. But more generally, neighborhood revitalization planning is about working to create the circumstances that support these kinds of investments. And that includes things like increased density, which improves the buying power and area, and improve transit, right? Those are some basic things that we can do that will lay the groundwork for those kind of private investments. And really the bigger thing is that it means, and this is kind of a recurring theme, is that it means correcting systemic problems that policy and planning have caused or at least been implicit in, right? Historic policy decisions at the federal level that have driven suburbanization and the suburbanization of wealth. And we've talked about this. We've talked about redlining and sort of the post-depression era lending practices, Federal Housing Administration and VA loans that favored new construction, homeownership and new construction in the suburbs and ingrained segregation by making loans in minority neighborhoods hard to get and making loans for minorities harder to get. um, That have sort of, these sort of policies as we've, as cities have expanded outwards have created the situation where the inner city neighborhoods are almost treated like they're disposable. And it's those sort of problems Um, that policy has caused that we need to overcome with policy, which means that there is a role for the public sector in addressing this.
0: Well, and one of the things, I I don't know, I don't think Sean and I really talked about this because obviously we didn't have that much time, but one of the things that factors into it is there just aren't, you know, grocery stores operate at fairly small margins and there just aren't that many of them. And, you know, you can do a market study for a particular neighborhood and, the market study could show there's plenty of incomes in that neighborhood to support a grocery store. But if a grocery store might be looking at a couple of locations, they're only going to have one or two in a particular geography, and that's all that geography will support. And so, you know, a lot of times what you see talking about the sprawl is grocery stores, you know, look like along Winchester, you know, grocery stores and Targets, whatever you know, just picked up and moved. And it doesn't mean that, that their original location, there weren't enough incomes and to support a grocery store, there were. But development moved out, the store moved out so it could capture the new development and because they knew people would drive from the old location.
2: Yeah, it's and that's the, you know, the age old story of, of retail follows rooftops, right? As people move out, the retail moves out with them and the people that are left behind in the city are, are, have fewer options and to me I think it's that sort of speaks to the, one of the hidden points here is that you know yes we need to we can and need to do more to bring grocery stores to inner-city neighborhoods but I almost think the more important thing is to improve transportation options options and transportation access for people in low-income neighborhoods um, because you know the typical American, Tribals. I think the the, the stats are the the typical American drive drives five miles to go grocery shopping, and in most places that's the same for low income households. Right? they drive maybe slightly shorter distance, but people are still driving to go to the grocery store. Um, so if we create a situation where now there's a grocery store in their neighborhood, well they're still driving to go to the grocery store uh, a shorter distance, uh, but. The difference is that when when you have low-income neighborhoods where there is a large group of folks who don't have access to transportation, well, they can't drive that five miles to the grocery store, or even that one mile, one point two miles to the grocery store. So there's multiple ways to solve this problem, but one way is to to address our mass transit issue and our transportation access problem, um, you know, and that solves multiple problems.
0: Well, that's, I mean, that, and we've talked about that before. That underlies. So many of these um, you know, challenges at the neighborhood level, lack of good transportation. I don't want to get too I don't want to digress too much, but um, in terms of transit access, I mean, what about some of, you know, the medical district district partnership and um, downtown Memphis Commission are collaborating on this sort of a via type um. System, which is um, I don't even know how to describe it. It's sort of a variation on Uber, where people—it's a really a hired ride—and within a certain geography, I want to—I'd love to do a program about that. And I mean, do you think that there's other besides overhauling MATA, new buses, more buses, more routes, more frequency? Do you do you see some of those kind of alternatives helping address this issue?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, part of me hates to sort of think about what are the little little baby steps that we can st- take instead, because then it means maybe we never take the bigger steps of really uh, coming up with the public funding that we need to create a robust and sustainable mass transit system. But uh, yeah, there are other ways to do it. I mean, one one approach, and, and so yeah, the sort of on-demand uh, ride hiring is one way to address it. Um another approach is in Baltimore they have this virtual supermarket program um, and I think it's a it's a partnership that involves the city's health department and basically it's it allows residents to order their groceries online uh, like like a lot of us privileged middle class folks do already uh, and you know maybe we pay an additional fee to do that but if you have some public support and, and this is again an issue where, public subsidies are justified to promote the public good, if you have some public support and it eliminates those additional fees uh, and, you know, you can help people figure out how to access those resources to order their groceries online. And maybe they're not delivered directly to the house, but maybe they're delivered to a library or a senior center or some central apartment complex where people can easily get to them. Um, That may be one way to, to solve the problem without uh, large-scale changes in the short term.
0: Yeah, I'm not familiar with that, but it sounds like a great idea. And for a while, you know, there were a couple of initiatives locally, including one that Dr. Reardon um, spearheaded mm-hmm. when he was here working in city and regional planning um, to actually, you know, bring fresh produce into neighborhoods.
2: Yeah, yeah, the the Green Machine, it was a project um, with St. Patrick's Church, uh, and yeah, it was, they had a Mad. they worked with Matt, Mana had donated a, a bus that was taken out of service. Uh, easy way was the produce sponsor and they would load this bus up with produce and sort of make the rounds, uh, to various public housing complexes.
0: And how did that, Um, how did it, was it successful while it was in, in, um it was
2: successful. It was, it was in the end, it ended up being really difficult to run uh, because there's a lot of logistics involved and you had to have, you had to hire somebody to to drive the bus. And then you had to hire somebody to be on the bus to operate the cash register and make the sales and stock the produce. Um, But the biggest issue was that the bus would break down. (laughs) And so, Somebody there had to be funding to fix the bus when it broke down, and some somebody had to come and tow the bus when it broke down, and there wasn't really a, a big operation behind it to support that. So it worked, it worked for a while and it was it was really pretty innovative uh, and maybe could work again with you know some additional resources behind it. But
0: well I wanted to talk about this later in their program, but since we've already gotten on this subject, let's talk a little bit about some other initiatives that you know, nonprofits and others are doing too. I want to come come back to grocery stores, but let's talk about this because there are some other interesting examples of approaches to addressing you know food insecurity here in Memphis.
2: Yeah, there are some some local nonprofit organizations that have done some really neat things uh, in South Memphis. So I'm thinking of the, both the Works CDC and Knowledge Quest, uh, and the Works has done a lot. Um, so you know, the, the the sort of the, the flagship um, program at the works is the South Memphis Farmers Market and, and Grocer. Uh, so this was a project that was a partnership with the St. Andrew AME Church in South Memphis and the Works CDC. Um, and in the early conversations, one of the big issues that came up was, hey, we don't have a grocery store nearby. You know, we don't have access to fresh, healthy food and we want a grocery store. And so our students and our community partners started thinking about what are some interim, interim solutions and the, the farmer's market um, at the corner of South Parkway in Mississippi, uh, that was a, a former gas station that was o- owned by the work CDC. Uh, and so the first step was to convert that into a weekly farmer's market and local you know, farmers would come in once a week and just sort of park their trucks and people would come out and buy. And then eventually uh, they sort of took it to the next level. Uh, they were able to, make it so that people could use their EBT cards to make purchases. And then the works continued to, to improve it, uh, got some additional grant funding, and turned the little building on the site into uh, a grocer that's open daily. So you can go in and buy fresh produce and, and dry goods and, and meat uh, on a daily basis. And, and they have, they also cooking, have cooking, cooking classes too. Yeah, they've got a, they've got next door to the building attached to it, they've got a, a test kitchen. Uh, where they have cooking classes, so that you can learn how to cook whatever the seasonal produce is that you know maybe you're not so familiar with. What do I do with a kale? That you know you can take cooking classes and, and learn how to use the produce that's available during the season. Uh, so that's one great example. And then um, Knowledge Quest, also in South Memphis, you know they've taken a, a, a former vacant lot, uh, two thirds of an acre, and turned it into a learning farm. Uh, where they work with kids after school and community members to grow food, uh, it helps those helps people learn what 's in the season at the time, what they can grow, how to be self sufficient They sell that food uh, to various farmers' markets around the city um, so you know various different approaches you know whether it's trying to create a grocery store or just trying to create direct access to food by growing it <laughs>
0: So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on 91.7 WYXR here in Memphis, and we're talking to Charlie Santo about grocery stores, food insecurity in low moderate income neighborhoods. So those are great examples, Charlie. And also, I mean, it's just really the thing about those approaches, and there's others, um, you know, there's a and was an effort to do a farmers market in North Memphis on Chelsea Avenue. You know, Memphis Tilth I think has some done some work around this area. And you know, one of the things about these approaches, which I really admire, of course, is you know neighborhoods taking the reins um, and addressing the issue. You know, in because because you know, a grocery store may or may not be coming, and it may or not be coming for a while, but in the meantime, what can we do? And it's a great example of the works. And you saw that, you know, you, we have been seeing that during COVID, certainly neighborhoods that are not where the residents in the neighborhood are having trouble accessing food pantries, you know, bringing the food pantry into the neighborhood. Um, and And so there's just a lot of that great community-based activity around, you know, the food desert issue for sure. Um, But let's, so let's circle back and talk about uh, grocery stores a little bit. And so what, and Sean and I talked a little bit about this, but what are some of the policy changes, but also, you know, different kinds of incentives that are or should be available to help I mean, I think the issues he laid out are real They're, you know, there's definitely a lot of times these projects aren't feasible. And the, I had an opportunity, I guess it was probably about 10 years ago now to serve on a statewide task force, looking at um, food deserts in urban and rural areas in Tennessee. And half of the task force was grocers and it was just extremely interesting hearing from their perspectives Um And then, you know, subsequently, there's been some, you know, nonprofit models we've heard about here. And um, anyway, so so let me know, what are your thoughts about that? As usual, it's like five questions in in (laughs) one. That's just my style. You're used to it by now, I guess.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, let me just say, I mean, I think we've talked about, yeah, it's difficult to to open a grocery store in a low-income neighborhood. The margins are low and there's... You, know, you can make money somewhere else. Uh, but I don't want to go all the way toward letting these benevolent grocers off the hook, right? Uh, I mean, I think they can open stores in some of these neighborhoods and be successful. And the thing that bothers me most is the the constant reference to shrinkage as the reason that we can't do it. And to me, it comes across as coded language. Um, you know, we're saying we can't open a grocery store in a low-income neighborhood because people there, those people are going to steal more. Um, But there's research out there that shows that, yes, shrinkage is a problem in retail, but it's the same problem no matter where it's located. There's just as much theft in a higher-income neighborhood as there is in a lower-income
1: neighborhood.
0: Well, and Sean and I talked about that, and he agreed. He said it's not that there's more theft. It's that the sales are not as high in some of these stores, and so it's a greater percentage of the of the total sales. So, but it's not, are people stealing more? It's just some of these stores are, you know, smaller and not this you know, and potentially not as profitable. So it has a bigger impact, but I completely agree with you.
2: Yeah. It was interesting to hear that he was a professional shoplifter. You <laughs> <laughs> get that job.
0: <laughs> right.
2: But yeah, I mean, the, the big, there's bigger picture issues and then there's things that can be done sort of short term. Again, the big picture issues, is we need to improve transit and that's, For a couple of reasons. One is that if you have a location that's more accessible by frequent transit, then it becomes more appealing to a retailer. They're more likely to locate there because that means more customers coming in and out. Uh, But even if that doesn't improve the the prospects of getting a grocery store in that neighborhood, it does give people a way to get out and get to a grocery store that might be somewhere farther away. Uh, But the role for the public sector uh, and, and public financial support for grocery stores is the same as it is with transit. It's kind of a parallel thing. Right. We talk about transit um, and we expect it to sort of pencil out. We expect transit providers to succeed like business, like private businesses that, you know, they'll, they'll work because they they take in more revenue than it costs for them to provide the service. But private businesses only enter a market where they can make money. Right. So for transit operators, that means you would only operate where there's ridership. Uh, so like if you're looking for a McDonald's in, in North Dakota, you're not going to find one everywhere because there's not a market there. Um, But a a transit provider, transit is a public service. So we expect both for it to make money and for it to have this broad coverage. And you you can't have it both ways. And so there's a a rationale for public support and for subsidy uh, to provide funding to those transit agencies so that they can provide more frequent transit. And it's the same thing with trying to provide access to quality food for people in low-income neighborhoods. The market conditions are such because of bad policies that the private market won't go there without some assistance. Well, that's the rationale for providing that assistance. So, provide some subsidies, uh, and we've we've seen some of that happen in Memphis. The the, the Save a Lot in Binghamton, you know, had some incentives behind it. Um, the Works again, they were instrumental in bringing the the cash savers uh, to the old Kroger location in um, the Southgate Shopping Center. Uh, and so there's a you know there's a financing mechanism associated with that that they're spearheading. It's this healthy food financing initiative, uh, and it's a it's a, a lending product, right? It's designed to help provide uh, financing to people that are going to open grocery stores or food stores in these low-income neighborhoods. So there are subsidies that subsidy programs that exist uh, and potentially should be expanded um, so that we can provide more of these public, uh, amenities.
0: Well, are there things that, um, local government can do besides, you know, edge, um, which is, you know, the Memphis and Shelby County economic development division, essentially, um, they have a community builder pilot, which is, you know, payment in lieu of taxes, which is, which is essentially an incentive that, um, that, you know, leverages other dollars um, and brings down the cost of, um, you know, starting a, a small business in a low- moderate-income neighborhood. In the case of Binghampton, it happened to be a grocery store. And that's a good program. It's relatively small. I mean, are there other things, you know, local governments can do in addition to, in Memphis, that you can think of in addition to, to pilots, which, you know, are somewhat some controversial,
2: yeah I mean, there's a, there's a limited number of things that that government can do that planning can do. Um, we can we can zone, right? We can say where these things are appropriate. Uh, we can subsidize and incentivize, which we've been talking about. The other thing we can do is regulate. And the thing that we can regulate in this case that would help are the dollar stores. Um, the dollar stores, the dollar general dollar tree. Uh, these, you know they, we, and Sean talked about it a little bit. Um, in one sense, those are competition for supermarkets. So the more of those that pop up in a low-income neighborhood, the less and less likely that you're ever going to get a real grocery store there.
0: For sure. Uh, and,
2: and they do meet some demand, like you can go in there and buy your dry goods and canned goods, uh, but you're never going to get produce there. You're never going to get meats there. Um, but the more of those exist, the less likely you're ever going to be able to get produce and meats in those neighborhoods. Uh, and they have a tendency. This, there's a lot of good research on this issue done by the Institute for Local Self-Reliance that talks about, you know, how these dollar stores are not only coming in after uh, there's economic loss in the neighborhood, but they're actually contributing to it by one, partly by by putting uh, whatever local grocery stores remain out of business, um, limiting people's access to those amenities. They also hire fewer people than a typical grocery store does. Um, and they just make it harder for, for a grocery store to a, ever come back in. And so they they are further eroding the prospects of these vulnerable communities uh, that, that they're targeting. But there are ways to do to, uh, policies that, that can be put in place to, to, to limit that, to regulate that. You can set a limit on, on chains uh, uh, or adopt what's called formula business ordinances that place the limit on the ability of chains to open in new, in new locations. Um, Tulsa has done a lot of this. So they have a, they've adopted a, 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 this formula business ordinance. They've adopted a dispersal policy for dollar stores so they can't locate so close to one another. Um, and then if you can couple that with expanding finance for locally owned grocery stores or, or other incentive mechanisms for even for chain grocery stores, then you can start to combat it. So it's, you can use all the ends of the spectrum uh, that that are available to public policy, whether that's incentivizing, subsidizing, and regulating.
0: You know, Charlie, I feel like I say this a lot, but can we do a show just on that? <laughs> on, on, uh-huh. on, on, you know, dollar stores, how many is too many, the impact they have on the community, and then different strategies for limiting them.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it'd be great to do a scan around the country to see you know, what other cities are doing. Um, you know,
0: because really, I mean, and I said this, well, Sean and I were talking, I said, you know, generally speaking, you know, they filled an important uh, gap in neighborhood retail in some neighborhoods that had nothing. So they are, you know, contributing, especially since a lot of people can walk to them, getting to sort mm-hmm. of your issue about transit. But, you know, we how many is too many, and, um, and then all the issues, I don't want to repeat what you just said, but, um, but I think that would be extremely interesting future Memphis metropolis.
2: Yeah, yeah, it would be. How many is too many? How many, you know, where should they go if we want to allow them? What does the dispersal policy look like? And, you know, is there, out of the box, is there a way to, when you have too many of them, is there a way to say, okay, dollar store, you got four of these in a four square mile area. Now you have to turn it into a full-scale grocery store. How about that? There you go. <laughs> you All right. 10,000 square foot stores. You can support one 30,000 square foot store that sells meat, produce. All right.
0: That's <laughs> a great note to end on. <laughs> so as usual, we've run out of time on a, a, to- a very big topic. Uh, so you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR. I've been talking to Charlie Santo, one of our regular commentators. So Charlie, thank you for, uh, for being on the show again.
2: You bet. Good to be here, Emily. Thanks.
0: You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at one. So please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.